Father God, we just give you praise this morning for the truth that you are sovereign over our lives. That our hopes, our dreams, our fears, they're in your hands. As we just sang, this is the truth. This is the life that as believers we can claim. Not that it's easy, but it is truth. And we can trust you. So, Father, I do pray that your presence in our lives will strengthen us to step into whatever this world calls us to step into, God. You're very clear. We are to love you, love others, and be a light in dark places. So we do pray for the persecuted church across the world. We pray for what's going on in Delhi and for this team that is there ministering to this community. May you give favor and as the hands and feet of Christ through Silk Road Catalyst are there loving in the name of Jesus and proclaiming the love of Jesus that many will come and see that there is a God that cares and there is a God that will help. So we pray for that, Father. In the powerful name of Christ, we also give to you right now the fears and the panic that the media has created with this coronavirus. We know that it's serious, and we know that um, it spreads. But, Father, may, may our fears be just left at the throne, and may we proclaim Christ, God, sovereign over us with every breath and every detail of our lives. So would believers still continue to be raised up and to walk into areas of the world where people may hear and may know Christ. Now prepare our hearts. Speak to us, Father. We need you. We, we lay all our worries from the week before you, and we ask, do what only you can do. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ronnie. In 1871, a Fijian missionary left his village and his family and put his large deep-sea canoe into the warm waters of the South Pacific and said goodbye to his village and waving goodbye to family and friends. He journeyed several hundred miles to the island of Papua New Guinea, and he never returned. In fact, 20 missionaries from Fiji uh, would die within the first two years of ministry in Papua New Guinea. 120 missionaries would die within the first two decades of ministry on this island uh, from, sent from Fiji. Most of them died from malaria, but some of them did die from attacks by um, cannibalistic islanders. And people often ask, looking back on history, how were they able to leave their family and friends knowing that death was probably lurking around the corner. And one of them eventually found a journal, and in this entry, it was the first one who went, wrote these words, we died before we left. Each day on the mission field, they didn't wake up making a decision of how would they respond that day to the threats they faced. They had already made that decision before they had to make that decision. They made a decision up front. Centuries before these missionaries ever left Fiji, we see three Hebrew worshipers of God standing on the soil of what is now present-day Iraq, and they made a decision to follow God even though it would cost them everything. And they made that decision before they had to make that decision. They said yes to God every day so that on that one particular day, they would be ready to say 
yes again, even though the intimidating voice of the world said, live for your own safety and depart from God. Our story today takes place in the 6th century B.C. At that time, the ruling world power was Babylon. They had already defeated God's people Israel and had deported them 900 miles where they would live 70 years as captives in Babylon. And in this particular story that we're looking today, it's preceded by a story where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream in which it was revealed to him that his kingdom would soon fall and that there was going to be a worldwide kingdom established and that kingdom looked like a mountain that was taking over all other mountains. The more that Nebuchadnezzar thought about this dream, the more that he resisted giving up his throne, so he decided to create this unbelievable, godless, huge idol to force his people to worship him so that he would never leave the, lose their allegiance. Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and set it up on the plain of, the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, the Montgomery building downtown is 10 stories. It's 100 feet high. So this is almost as tall. And then you can imagine in the middle of the city, somebody trying to force worship to occur by creating a, an idol as large as that building. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, and then my favorite musical instrument, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, if you read the book of Daniel enough, you will know that it parallels, it tracks almost identical with the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Both of them them are called apocalyptic literature because they deal with the end of times. Now, in the book of Revelation, so similar to the book of Daniel, we're going to also see an idol set up that intimidates God's people. Let me introduce you to some of the players in the book of Revelation. There's a, there's a, a player that's a main player in the book of Revelation called the beast there in the yellow. And uh, the beast is really nothing more than another term for a multi-nation, anti-God, anti-church conspiracy. Uh, That's a confederacy, a confederacy that's set up against God and his people. It's called the beast. Then there's another figure, you know this familiar, at least the, the sounding of it, the Antichrist. He's the primary spokesman for this multi-nation confederacy. And, and he's probably a very influential political figure. And then there's also another person in the, uh, the mix here at the end of times. It's called the false prophet. And his determination is to persuade people to listen to the voice of the Antichrist and join this multi-nation confederacy that opposes God. So you have these three figures at work in the book of Revelation. Now, in order for the false prophet to generate attention to the Antichrist, he builds this huge statue, just like we see in the book of Daniel. Revelation 13, he, the second beast, that's a false prophet, ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, that's the confederacy of nations. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak So this is a living, speaking idol and calls all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Now there's a lot of spilled ink 
through the years and a lot of books written about who the Antichrist is and who the beast is. Well, I really believe there's the spirit of Antichrist in every age, and there's always intimidating forces. And I really think you need to read apocalyptic literature to not get bogged down in details, but look for timeless principles. And here's the principle of Daniel and Revelation, that as history draws to a close, unbelievers will devise more and more ways to intimidate Christians. So it doesn't matter whether it's the anti-Christian force in Daniel's uh, idol, or you go to the end of times, the end of history, and, um, and the image set up by the, the, the false prophet, the principle is still the same. False religions are quite willing to use terrorizing force to advance their cause. Jesus Christ did speak on the subject of judgment quite a bit. But if you read all of the words of Christ, the predominant message that comes to the teaching of our Lord and Savior is, I have come to save you from judgment. So the thing that most influences our heart and our feeling and our affections in regard to the future judgment is the love of Jesus Christ that has come to save us from judgment. But this is not true with world religions. And this is not true with cults. They incite people to follow through the threat of terror. Not so with God. Look at God. He doesn't put a 90-foot statue in front of us and says, worship this or you die. Instead, God puts a 10-foot cross in front of you and says, this is where I, as God, am going to die for your sins. A lot of people say we, we all worship the same God, that Christians and Jews, Hindus and Muslims, that we are all worshiping the same God. It's not even close. We're the only religion on the face of the earth that worships a God that was humiliated for the sake of saving his people. If you serve a God who only threatens, then when your religion is threatened, the only strategy you have is to threaten. And this is the explanation of what we see in places like New Delhi, what we see in, in places like Pakistan, what we see in, even in China. We see threat because of the government's fear that they can't control the allegiance of the people. Look at our Savior, the example that He set, not controlling, not dominating, but surrendering to humiliation for the sake of the salvation of everybody in this room who believes. 1 Peter 2, 23. When they hurled their insults at Him, Jesus on the cross, He did not retaliate. No threat. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself into Him who judges justly. The purpose of Jesus Christ coming to the world, Son of God, equal to God, was to be humiliated. The reason He came was to be humiliated on the cross, that through His going down, He might lift us up. But not so with many religions. Not so with the world religions and cults. Their God has never 
suffered humiliation and therefore their followers, when they believe that they are feeling a sense of humiliation, respond with attack because their God never received attack upon himself. And so they resort to a fear-induced obedience. We see this in Daniel chapter 3. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, all the nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I think this is a massive phrase. That just includes about everyone. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar, they knew the government. They knew the government, when it was cracking down on religion, freedom, they knew the government was serious, and they caved to pressure. And probably, in the minds of everybody, they had to rationalize their caving to fear with some type of compromise because we just have to persuade ourselves no I'm not disobeying I am I'm just I'm just saving my life it's called compromise here's what it looked probably sound like for some of those people I work for the king this is my job I have to do it it's called compromise It would be a waste to make such a sacrifice of my life that will not make any difference in such an evil land. Why should I go be a missionary and nobody ever changes? It's compromise. It's not obeying. This has nothing to do with religion. I'm just showing political support for king and country. They're saying my faith doesn't affect my vote. It's called compromise. I would consider taking a stand if others would stand with me. But I'm not going to since they're not. It's compromise. Surely it can't be wrong if so many people are doing it. Certainly the voice of our culture. It's compromise. A God of grace would never expect me to do something this hard. Yeah, he would. It's just five seconds. Of bowing down before a piece of metal, what difference could that possibly make in eternity? It's compromise. If I compromise a little now, that will give me a platform for speaking truth later. So between these and a thousand other excuses, all the citizens of Babylon found a way to rationalize their disobedience and so they bowed before the idol everybody in the land everybody the scripture says bowed except three and somebody told on them for not bowing down Daniel 3 8 at this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews they said to the king Nebuchadnezzar there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you 
have set up. I always get a little bit amused, I have for years, when I read that phrase, when these tattletales came and talked to the king, it said, they don't pay any attention to you. What in the world caused these three men to say, we're not paying any attention to this powerful king? What, what causes you to act like that? It's because you learn to make all of your decisions in life not on your feelings, but on the Word of God. And when they saw that idol, 90-foot tall idol, standing in the middle of downtown, their minds quickly went to Exodus chapter 20. Where God says in the first of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Do you know why so many believers make wrong choices in the midst of temptation and trial? Because they're making their decisions based on how they feel, the advice of others, or the example of culture. Yet these three men said, what does God say? Who has God revealed himself to be? What is truth? And they made their decisions based on truth instead of their emotions. And look at Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. Daniel 3.13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? So this is the most powerful man in the world. He could bend the will of everybody in his kingdom like coat hangers. But these three men, as Johnny Cash said a long time ago in a song, they would not bow and they would not bend. They looked at that man and they rejected his God and they refused his order without showing any fear at all. Here was the strongest, most powerful man in the world and he looked weak and God's people looked strong. So hating their courage and their faithful loyalty to God, he gave them another opportunity to reconsider their decision. Now, verse 15, now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. You're going to be all right. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace and then what God would be able to rescue you from my hand. I think this is where Satan is at his best. I think this is where Satan, I found in my own life, is so strong. Is not the first temptation. Not the immediate crisis. It's when I have time to think about it. It's when he comes back to me, not on day one, but day 31. Wears me down. And he comes again and says the same temptation. And so it's a battering of my emotions. A battering of my willpower. And, and this is where your, your, your Christian faith is really born or lost. And for these men they said we must fix our gaze on no one but God. 
and listen to no voice but our Savior. That's what these men had done with all their trials, and this was simply another trial. But they had had a pattern of trial, obedience, trial, obedience, trial, obedience. And so they were getting some spiritual muscle built up in their life. And look at their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. So they're not going to answer him. They're not on trial. He is. He is the one who said that a 90-foot piece of metal is more worthy to be worshipped than the living God. And he's got to give an answer for that. They don't. So we don't have to talk to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Our job is to declare truth. It is God's job to validate truth. And he will. I love the confidence of these guys in the next verse. If we are thrown into the blazing fire... The God we serve is able to save us from it. And He will rescue us from your hand, O King. He will. Almost sounds like name it, claim it theology, doesn't it? Which makes us vomit. I have enough faith, He's going to do it. It's not what they're saying. It's important that you understand two things they're not saying. They're not saying that we know the future. They're not saying that. Nor are they saying our faith is so strong. We prayed, believed. Our faith is so strong. We know the future. I'm like, we're determining the future because of our faith. They're not saying that. No, all they're saying is this. Either God is going to send a miracle and he's going to hold us in his hand and he's going to protect us from earthly harm. We're going to get delivered that way. Miracle. Or he's going to allow you to throw us in that fire. We're going to burn up. And he's going to take us in his hand. And he's going to take us to glory forever where you can never touch us again. But in either way, they end up in the hand of God. And not in his hand. His hand is not in charge of their life. God's hand is. That's what they're telling him. Either way, Neb, we're coming out of this in God's hand. You can't talk like this unless you've settled this beforehand. Their goal in life was not longevity, but faithfulness. The goal of life is not to live a long time on this earth. The goal of life is to be faithful to the will of God while you're here. If you don't settle that on the front end, you're going to get devastated when he doesn't save you out of the fire. They didn't know what God was going to do. They only knew what they were going to do. Verse 17. The God we serve 
is able to save us. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That is my favorite statement of faith in the Bible. I love those words. But if not. You know what kind of faith it takes to say that? I mean, it doesn't take much faith to say, I prayed, got the job. Prayed, got healed. Prayed, my marriage got saved. What kind of, look at this. But even if I don't get that answer, I'm not leaving God. How do you talk like that? You have to see something about the worth of God's greatness and beauty prior to the event. During the event, after the event, you've got to see something about God's magnificence and His worth and His all-compelling beauty to say He is worth loving even if not. The answer I seek. Tim Keller, a few weeks ago I read a life-changing quote for me. I'll share it with you today. Keller says, you should never go to God because He's useful. Go because he's beautiful. And yet there's nothing more useful than finding God beautiful. What does he mean, don't go to God because he's useful? It means you don't go to God with a list of things, do this because you are here to serve me. That's not why you go to God. You go because you look at the creation, you look at towering mountains, glistening oceans, Flying hawks and running deer and little babies being born. Woven together in mother's wombs miraculously from two cells. You go to God because of Jesus Christ, God humiliated on a cross so that you would not be humiliated in judgment. He's beautiful. That's the only thing that can sustain you when it's your turn to stand before the threat and the intimidation of the world. Ultimately, only those who have seen the beauty of God will be able to handle in the time of trial and be able to say, but if not, only the beauty of God. December 30th of this past year, 2019, Pastor Wang Yi, who served the Early Rain Church in China, was sentenced by the Intermediate People's Court in Chengdu, China. The crime that he was sentenced for for nine to and, and imprisoned for nine years was inciting uh, or attempting to subvert state power. That's the formal charge. Attempting to subvert state power. The real charge is he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. On the day that he went to prison... He released a statement called, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. That's very unusual terminology. My Declaration of Faithful 
disobedience. It's speaking of his disobedience to the law. I want to read it to you. I hope God uses me to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority. There is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen, Jesus Christ. Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teachings, it is merely a lie of demons. I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that He would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. That is a but-if-not faith. He could rescue me from nine-year prison sentence, but if not, he is still a beautiful Savior. And now back to the text, how we look at our Lord's decision of what he did with these three Hebrew worshipers. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I found in my own life the heat of the, in, the, heat of the trial increases when the potential of ministry in the future increases. The heat of the trial increases when potential ministry in the future increases. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to say a couple things about these verses. Number one, do not be surprised at the world when your continued witness for Christ increases the rage and hostility of unbelievers around you. Your faithfulness in the midst of trial, in the midst of their denigrating your God, your faithfulness only increases their insecurity because they cannot stop you nor the voice of God that's coming out of you. They are angry over the voice of God that they hear. 
We saw this this week when a United States senator publicly in front of the Supreme Court steps threatened, threatened to sitting justices of the court because they were hearing, just hearing, a case in Louisiana that if they voted in favor would result in babies in the wombs of mothers being saved. We might disagree on a thousand political things. I don't think anybody in this room will disagree that saving babies from slaughter is its always the right thing. Who can disagree? It's all, there, it's all the case was involved. His increasing fear of losing power over the killing of babies created an out-of-control threat. This is what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. His anger is increasing because the voice of God is increasing. And he was about to see God speak in a way that he would never get over. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He definitely had the right yes men around him. There were three, positive. He said, look, I see four. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not know what we know about our Lord Jesus Christ. All he knew was pagan myths that said that sometimes God would have offspring. So he's thinking, must be an offspring of a God. But we know better than that because we know about theological realities called Christophanies, which is an appearance of Jesus Christ, not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. We have every reason to believe that the Jesus, God, Son of God, who appeared in the New Testament, just as easy for him to appear in the Old Testament. Not hard. Pick which testament. He can show up. Because we know he showed up in the New Testament, right? And his name told us why it's important when he shows up because of who he is. Matthew chapter 1, to Joseph, husband of Mary, what are you to name him? Then the virgin will be with child, and he will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God has shown up. So Jesus Christ, this is called a Christophany, Christ appearance in the New Testament. We have every reason to believe, surely, why would it not be? Jesus Christ in that furnace with these three Hebrew worshipers. The God-man in the manger and the God-man in the furnace. Well, the presence of Jesus Christ in this story is important for two reasons. Number one, it's very important you get this. This is the promise that you can always... Rest in. Christ's presence guarantees our safety from eternal judgment. You've got to love this. 
always guaranteed our presence from eternal judgment. So when Nebuchadnezzar heated up the furnace seven times, the Bible says that the guards who threw the three Hebrew worshiping men, the three Israelite men, those guards who threw them in, they were burned up. The three men of God were spared. Take this to the end of the Bible, the end of times, and again we see who lives and who dies in eternity. Revelation 19, then I saw the beast, that would be the confederation of nations, and here are the political leaders and the religious leaders who are behind them. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider that's identified earlier in the book as Jesus Christ and his army. That's the church. Everybody who's died is already there. Part of that army right now. They're coming back to earth. Read that in 1 Thessalonians. But the beast was captured. That's the confederation of nations. And with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So again, we're shown in the end of times the powers of the world that is so easy to compromise and become part of in order to live in safety in this world. That world system and its leaders will be burned up in the end times. But not only that confederation and its leaders, but all citizens of earth who have rejected Jesus Christ and believed the persuasion of the voice of the world, they will also not escape from this eternal judgment. Revelation 20, 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. I will take an amen here. <laughs> the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. If you're not a follower of Christ, everything you've ever done, thought, said is in that book. And when you stand before the Lord, you'll have to give an account for everything you've ever done in the books. It's a dreadful thought. Everything is remembered in the books. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So today, everybody in this room, your name is, all your deeds are recorded in the books, and you'll be judged from that, or your name as a follower of Jesus Christ has been included in the book of life, and there's not a shred of your past that's in that book. Nothing. It just says redeemed, born again, adopted, written in red, the blood of Christ in the book of life. So once again, we see the same principle we saw in the book of Daniel. Those who oppose God, destroyed. Those who loved God in eternity, they are saved. Second principle out of this story. Christ's presence strengthens us as God leads us into suffering. Say that again. Christ's presence strengthens us as God leads us into suffering. You look at the story in the book of Daniel, and it is not the 
proper application to say, you trust God and you won't suffer. No. What you read about in Daniel chapter 3, do you know what we call that? A miracle. They don't happen much. If miracles happened all the time, we'd call them normals. They're called miracles, not normals. So it's a miracle when, when God saves people like this. What is normal is that God's people suffer on this earth on the way to glory. And you come to church to be encouraged again in the middle of your suffering because you know in eternity you will not suffer and those who have rejected God will never stop suffering. So it's normal that we suffer and it's also normal that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is with us in our suffering. Remember the last words of Jesus Christ to His disciples. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Go to New Delhi and suffer. Go to China and suffer. Give your life away and suffer. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you in that furnace always, even to the end of the age. This is a precious reality. It's the only thing that David Livingston said sustained him in the 17 years that he served in Africa. One of the things that happened to him was being maimed by a lion. And it was this verse, he said, this is what saved my hope. Jesus Christ is with me. Now let me tell you, this is difficult to believe in the furnace. It's so hard to believe in the middle of the trial. But let me encourage you as you go back and read the text today, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar saw the fourth man in the fire. It doesn't say the three Hebrew children saw him. I want to tell you, in the middle of your trial, the most difficult things at times is to see Jesus. The most difficult thing in the middle of this pressure and this pain is to hear Jesus. The most difficult thing in the middle of, of sorrow and grief is to feel Jesus. And that's why you go back to Matthew 28 and say, I can't see you, I can't hear you, I can't feel you, but your word says you are here. And that's all you've got to go on. It's what he says, I'm with you. I can't tell you how many times in my life emotional pain has been so great for me. I'm not a strong person. Emotional pain has been so great to me. I have accused God. I've cried out to God. I, I've said it a hundred times. I don't, I don't feel you. You're not here. Where are you? And I've accused him. I've been cruel to him. My words have been vicious. Or just silent, but the same message. And you know what he was doing the whole time? 
He was right beside me. He was right beside me. I didn't think he was strengthening me, but he was strengthening me. I didn't think he was loving me, but he was loving me. And he was listening to me pour out all these accusations. It was not wounding him at all. He was just waiting till one day I could stand on the stage and say, looking back upon every one of those moments now, he was with me every single time. And he was in it all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do find you beautiful. The unbelievable moment in which you left heaven for your ultimate Christophany, your appearance on earth as a baby in a manger, growing up in the skin and shell of a young man, maturing as an adult, working with your father as a carpenter, and then venturing out to proclaim the kingdom of God, healing the sick, raising the dead, always yielding to your Father's will so that you could offer a perfect body on the cross to die for the sins of rebels, doubters, to die for all sorrow that you could turn it into all joy, rising from the dead to prove that you are the King of kings over all powers, over all principalities. Oh, Jesus, you are beautiful. The forgiveness of sins that you bought with your blood is beautiful. The Holy Spirit who lives in us and is patient for us when we doubt and cry and accuse, the Holy Spirit is beautiful. The plan that you're working on, oh God, the plan that requires suffering, the plan that you provide strength to endure is beautiful. Because it's sent to us from a loving heart. It will serve a good purpose. And it ends on the shores of heaven with the eternal enjoyment of everlasting beauty. Oh God, encourage the faint of heart, the broken hearted, the, the faithless. Those whose souls have been battered and bloodied. May they today leave with an image of Jesus Christ in the furnace. Jesus Christ beside them, listening, loving, working all the way until he escorts them to the Father's throne. In Jesus' name I pray, O oh, beautiful God, amen.